Hi everyone, welcome back to the Paramount Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. Really great to have you all here again. And uh, yeah, hope you're doing well. And uh, today I have a returning guest, um, good friend of mine, um, a writer, very good writer, um, and uh, just an all-round good human um, and fellow film fan, uh, Douglas Humphreys, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I think it just occurred to me that I think this is like my third time. So it is. Uh, it is yeah. third time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully not the last either. Um, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Douglas and I probably chat probably about once a week in the little um, little group that we're part of, and we talk often talk about movies and we talk about other lots of other things as well. Pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we kind of. We uh, we kind of thought we would talk about Oppenheimer, uh, Christopher Nolan's movie, which yep. came out in July, uh, twenty twenty three, um, and because of the it's such a powerful movie, with lots of different themes and lots of things to think about, and we thought it'd be a good idea to talk about them. So here we are. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I first also want to say we're not bringing this out this podcast out until the writer's strike is over because um, um, we want to show solidarity with writers and actors and directors and uh, anyone who's um, on strike and isn't getting paid fairly. Um, so this will not go out until that is over. Um, and that's something we've both agreed beforehand. Um, both of us are writers, so we uh, especially feel like um, are aware of the importance that creative people get paid well and get paid properly um and uh and uh in full support of those people who are striking so um that's why this podcast is coming out when it is whenever it comes out i don't know when it's going to come out yet because we don't know when mm-hmm. the strike's going to be over yet but um yeah so yeah so that's kind of our little thing of solidarity with with um with those who are on strike at the moment um so we're going to talk about, um, and Christopher Nolan himself actually has shown some solidarity as well, the director of this movie, mm-hmm. said that he wasn't going to work on a new movie until the strike is over. So that's great as well from him. Um, and uh, so here we are, um, Oppenheimer. It's, uh, I've lost count of how many movies Christopher Nolan has made now. What, 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 which number is this? <laughs> I've seen all of them, but I can't. But there's so many now, I can't. I can't keep up. Um, so we had following, then we had Memento, then we had um, Batman. Be- oh, no, no, um, Insomnia. Then it was yep. Batman oh, Begins. Yep. Then it was uh, the Prestige. Mm-hmm. Then it was the Dark Knight. Then Inception. Then the Dark Knight Rises. Then Interstellar, and then Dunkirk, Tenet, and Oppenheimer. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's a lot of movies. Um, yeah, well, probably into double figures now for movies anyway. Yeah. So one of the, one of the great movie makers of our, of our time, I think it's fair to say, oh, yeah. a great storyteller. Um, I love, I, he's my favorite director, I think probably, um, just the fact that he shoots on film as well, doesn't use CGI, you know this story. I've been reading some of the some of his scripts recently, um, including the one for this movie, uh, and they're brilliant. So, yeah, and this is a really this is a really uh, important story that needs to be told. Mm-hmm. Um, you've probably heard of um, Doctor J Oppenheimer, 
the one of the one of the creators of the first um, atom bomb. Um, uh, and the movie basically is the story of uh, well, it's the story of his life, but it's the story of that first the build up to that first test and the consequences of it, um, mm-hmm. and the consequences for um, Oppenheimer personally and his guilty conscience and um, the end of the movie. I mean, there are going to be spoilers for the movie in this in this episode. By the way, like oh, yeah. we're not going to we can't exactly. Uh, you know, do do a podcast on episode without. So, if you haven't seen it and you don't want to be spoiled, then go watch it. I recommend everyone watches it anyway because I think it's a really important oh, yes. movie to watch. Um, and um, come back. But um, but yeah, that's kind of it. And the and the of course the ending is very very powerful. Um, with Oppenheimer kind of thinking about the possible consequences of his actions beyond his lifetime. Um. And it just leaves you right there. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. You know, when I left the movie, I, I didn't talk for a while and I was quite sad. Um, lots of people, I don't think anyone spoke as they left the cinema. It was, I don't know if that mm-hmm. was your experience as well, Douglas. Yeah, I think there was definitely like a sense of, and you go to movies, you know, and they are what they are for the most part. It's been a while since I went in a movie and, it's been a very long I, – I know the last time I went to a movie and everyone clapped at the end, um, which was uh, The Lord of the Rings, um, mm. Return of the King. And it's like – which I had seen – I saw all three in theaters. I'm dating myself here. Like oh, if if not almost the day they came out. Time. And at the end, Time. like we applauded. It was – they were that good as far as like stories and obviously, you know, uh, cinema. Um, and I do recall like – at the end of the movie, like for the screening I went to for Oppenheimer, uh, which I got to go to an IMAX screening, like there was also applause, uh, which I think it was just sort of, Hmm. you could immediately tell that this was beyond just a powerful story, that this was a like cinematic masterpiece in the sense of like, I'm watching a piece of film that is the height of filmmaking in that kind of like Spielberg kind of way. Um, Yeah. And so I think there was a lot of appreciation there, but also in this, you know, uh, the sense of there was just a lot to to process there. And I think as you know, people were walking out. I, if I was really thinking about that, that probably was a little more muted than I would have expected. No one, you know, you you come out of you come out of Barbie, you're talking about all this, <laughs> the your favorite parts of Barbie, yeah. and this part, like I think I didn't get to the parking lot to turn to my dad who I went and see when then just like, what do you think? And we were both, you know, very impressed, but there was a sense of like, well, no one's coming out going like, that was, Oh, that was such a fun movie. Like no one's mm-hmm. thinking that we're all processing. So yeah, I, in a very similar kind of way, the, you know, it's hard not to, to experience that and not to come away affected if not changed. Mm. And so, yeah, I would definitely have, have felt that, which like I said, Definitely has been a while since I've been in a theater watching a movie and felt that, especially in a communal sense, like, you know, I've, I've been affected by movies, you know, but then to feel like the audience is actually sharing that, that that's something we've all shared this singular experience. Yeah. I think that that was my feeling of it as well. It's because I saw it in IMAX too. Um, mm-hmm. And really the way that they use, the way that Christopher uses IMAX is, yeah, I mean, he's a master at it now. He's, he's used it in so many movies. Um 
And this was shot entirely in IMAX cameras, and you know, he mm-hmm. invented black and white IMAX cameras for the movie because I, because Christopher Nolan wanted to wanted to shoot in black and white in IMAX, and they didn't have they didn't have them, so Kodak just made made them. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so that, I mean that's incredible as in in itself, um, but it definitely adds to the movie, you know, and like you're saying, it's it's an immersive experience because the the screen is so big, firstly, but also the sound. Is all oh, around yeah. you. So when you have that moment when the bomb, the the, the test happens, mm-hmm. uh, it's so powerful because Chris Nolan uses sound uses sound so well in that scene because when the explosion happens, it's all silent because mm-hmm. sound travels slower than light, right? And yeah, it's such a brilliant bit of bit of filmmaking because you're seeing you're seeing this all happen. You're seeing people's reaction to it in silence and then suddenly the noise hits you and it's mm-hmm. it's oh, it's such a powerful moment and it's uh because going from silence to maximum sound in a in an IMAX <laughs> cin- cinema yes. is incredible and just the way that it's built up and the way that and the significance of it and you know what 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 this means and just that moment is so so powerful it's brilliant filmmaking um and it just gets you all in the kind of in the emotions as well, and in the like. Because I, I, was, I found myself looking at everyone's reactions and their faces, and the, the different reactions from different people, and mm-hmm. like in the silence, you know, before the sound hits, and then like it's almost like people are having a reaction, and then suddenly the reality of it, boom, there. It's like it's it's powerful, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree that that particular moment we going in, I think we had discussions before about like before we saw the movie, like kind of speculating as to how Nolan was going to structure things temporally wise, which Nolan um is very good at plan playing with time specifically through through the medium of storytelling with uh with movies. Uh, someone actually reminded me that this isn't the first time he split a movie between color and uh, black and white mm. to show different. Um, I think believe Memento, yeah, um, which again Memento is that kind of the stole backwards because uh, the main character has sort of memory issues. That the black and white is in the same way that this this movie did in the very same way. That is also like that's the real life version, or that's a particular perspective that is less colored by the narrator. And the same way Oppenheimer, we have Oppenheimer's perspective, which is in color. And then the stark black and white reality, which is obviously black and white. Um, so, the, you know, just visually through that was always, you know, it's it's just amazing to see what Nolan's going to do with that. Um, but we had discussed, like, where Trinity, where the A-test was going to fall within the movie and ended up being sort of basically plot point two um, as far as like three act structure, yeah. uh, which makes sense. But going in, you kind of knew, you kind of knew that was going to be a big moment. And what's amazing was that even knowing that wasn't, I was not prepared for how big that moment was. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, you know, that's the idea. You couldn't really. And, where where stories do very well or good stories is when we can kind of inhabit the mind of another person 
And in this, we're obviously, for most of it, we're inhabiting Oppenheimer's mind and we're seeing and experiencing things uh, mm-hmm. through his perspective. And so we are living up to the anticipation that he is. And we have, as you know, the dramatic irony as uh, audience members is that we know what happened and what didn't happen. He did not, you know, and there's a, there's that kind of subplot where they talk about that there was a non-zero chance that when they lit this thing, that it caused a uh, a cataclysmic chain reaction that would basically end all life on the Earth. Which you got to think when we're when your hand is above the button and you're waiting for it to count down, like how is that not going through your mind? And obviously that didn't happen, but in the sense of like in the moment we're sort of inhabiting them. Yeah. In the character of like, we don't actually know what's going to happen. We, we know what's going to happen. We can, and like Oppenheimer, the physicist, everyone else almost like they know what was going to happen. They've done the math and they have enough math to know it. this is how atoms work. This is how we've designed it to work this way. Something could go wrong, but that's outside of if everything goes right, we know what it should do because they would be able yeah. to take precautions, obviously. But there's also the sense of like that does not prepare you for watching it happen. And that sense of, mm. uh, you, like you said, which I had seen before, I was telling my dad afterwards, when they're doing all the pre-test of the, the conventional explosions that they use to initiate the, the implosion for the vision. When they're doing the test of those, there is the delay in the sound. You see the, the bomb explode, and then a second later, you hear the crack. And so they actually p- put that in, which I was so impressed by, because that's actually how it works. If you're at a bomb rage and you set off a bomb, you're not going to hear the sound for a full second after you see it. But in movies, typically, if I'm going to show an explosion, I'm going to give you the sound at the same time. Otherwise, people are not going to understand. It's not going to. Yeah. yeah. And so that they set up this thing of like, you are, again, we're the perspective. We, we as the audience, we don't get to go everywhere. We're not at the bomb. We're a mile away where they are, where Oppenheimer is. And so what he sees is this in insanely bright thing brighter than the sun happen and there is enough time between that and the sound for him to contemplate what is happening and then just this wall of sound of course hits you and yeah uh which (laughs) that alone like obviously the visuals of imax are kind of the the staple of IMAX, but I, told, I was telling my dad afterwards, like I had forgotten, like oh yeah, the the screen's three stories tall, the speakers are also three stories tall, and there's a lot of sound. This movie plays with sound as much as with visuals, and so I was not prepared for just the amount of sound. Like I was at a rock concert, like you felt that in your chest when it mm, happened, yeah. and I can't help but think, oh, that's also intentional by uh, Nolan that he, you know, picking uh, IMAX not only because we can get these very fantastic visuals, but because IMAX theaters kind of come built in with the kind of sound quality and uh, force that would even more make this kind of palpable, mm. which it really was. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, and you're right. It just... It uses the uses sound to tell a story as well, which is mm-hmm. a, a very difficult thing to do. Um, well, it's something it we well. typically see with like soundtracks mm. oh, and yeah. sound effects are sound effects are there, but they're like a secondary thing. 
And this movie made sound effects as much a star as the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, yeah. actually, it's an interesting point you raised about the explosions. I remember in Interstellar, um, when there are explosions in space, you don't hear them. Because you can't yes. hear them in space. Mm-hmm. And like every movie in space, you need to, when you know when you have explosions, you always hear them. Yeah. But in reality, you that that wouldn't happen. And of course, Christopher Nolan wants to be realistic as possible. Uh, and so in Interstellar, when you know when the spaceship explodes in the kind of third mm-hmm. act or the final act, um, you don't hear it. You just see it, and it's actually more powerful when you don't hear it. it Absolutely, like for me, that made it more powerful because it's just just. This explodes and it's like, and it's what that represents in that moment in that mm-hmm. movie because it means they can't go home. Um, yeah, that, that, I which, mean, this is, we're talking about a different movie, but it's the same principle as he used in Oppenheimer with this explosion that you know you don't hear it straight away. Um, yeah, um, and I'm fine doing a, a side for Interstellar, um, but yeah. like that, which that is a really good example of in storytelling, kind of giving you the reality of the experience and actually putting you there. Whereas I wouldn't be surprised if someone watched Oppenheimer and saw like just the test where they're doing the little, the the test on the explosions and we're like, Hey, why is the sound delayed? Because every movie they've ever seen where there's a giant fire explosion and the superhero is walking away from it, not looking back because he's cool. Like they hear the sound and they're like, Oh, because that's not how explosion one. That's not how explosions sound. They don't have this tiger roar to them. Um, it is it is very violent, but very quick. Like the pop is because it's the vacuum, basically, um, of the air being forced out and then being sucked back in. And so it's usually very quick and usually very loud. Um, and But at the same, what he did, obviously, for Oppenheimer is kind of give the reality experience. And he did a very good job with Interstellar as well of we don't really understand, unless you're like a super nerd like me, you don't understand the force of a explosive decompression we think like oh someone opened the airlock and got sucked out we don't understand like no that's an explosion uh, like it it would have the force to rip a ship apart just like just having the airlock fail which is in that moment and so what being watching that which also spoilers for interstellar matt damon in that scene where he's kind of in the middle of a speech kind of explaining to them why he's doing what he's doing which is he's doing something terrible and they're trying to tell him like it's not going to work and he's in the middle of that and it explodes and so there's this violent like pop and then we're we're suddenly outside the ship and we just see fragments scattered and it's that like you said it's this kind of it's this silent crescendo and like oh oh no and it's that sense of like, because we're left in silence, it's even more powerful in the same way in that A-bomb sequence, seeing, giving us those visuals, which before we had those little inner bits of every time sort of Oppenheimer's brain is sort of every time mm-hmm. we're like shot inside, we had those visuals, which are amazing and just kind of like jarring. But there was always were accompanied by sound. And then we're actually at the moment and we see these amazing visuals, which again, not CGI, like we recreated these, these amazing fireball and we're not given sound. And so we can't help but contemplate it. Exactly. And I think that's the idea of like in the same way we're given this sort of Shiloh crescendo. Oh, it's happening. Oh, it's happening. It is very, very quiet. And we can't help but feel like that's – we know we're getting ready because we know it's going to hit us. 
but you can't help but just contemplate that. And again, that feels very, as, as much as that is realistic, obviously movies aren't, aren't tied to that kind of realism in the sense mm-hmm. of like the sound usually comes with the explosion. But by giving us that realism, again, it forces the contemplation of the moment. Yeah. Of, oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he uses it as a storytelling tool and uh, to, uh, a way to mm-hmm. engage the audience with yeah. what's going yeah. on because you, because in silence, you haven't got the sound of the movie to cover up your thoughts for you. You just got to sit mm-hmm. there and like, okay, you're watching what's happening, but there's no sound. Yeah. So you've just got your thoughts, like your reflections, your reactions. And also your instinct. And because it's not that, I mean, it's, it's not in real time. It's not that long, but it's long enough. Mm-hmm. You just have an intuitive reaction rather than like, considered one like what's your kind of gut reaction to this like what is and then you get the noise like you know and it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's you know and it's yeah it's powerful and it's brave it's brave filmmaking to do that because oh, yeah. the audience in silence for even like in seconds <laughs> you know it's it, it's mm-hmm. it's brave but but christopher nolan uses it really really well um because he's a great filmmaker and storyteller mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely i think that it is reminiscent of a lot of a lot of modern stories. I was watching something about uh, another movie, and they mentioned that I was actually the new Indiana Jones. Um, they mentioned that, which I did enjoy, a Dial of Destiny. They were kind of comparing it to previous Indiana Jones, which is you know, of course, you're going to compare it to to Raiders of the Lost Ark and stuff like that. And they mentioned like Raiders has this very kind of sweeping, but like it stays in locations a lot. And Dial of Destiny was just like boom, 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 uh, kind of moving from one plot point to the next and did kind of linger which is that's modern cinematography the barely modern american filmmaking is very much like rapid like filling time and doesn't often like give a moment uh, or even kind of slow down as far as the plot goes uh, and oppenheimer obviously it's three hours long there's a lot going on but there are these moments where we're kind of forced to sit and you know obviously that's the biggest one the trinity test but there are also, I think if you go back, you'd find there's a lot of sort of like, you know, uh, spaces in there where you're kind of left with just, you have to kind of consider the situation. And, mm. I, you know, again, silence and, you know, any, I feel like any poet or music musician would tell you that silence is just as much part of, of, of making sound or playing with sound as as notes or music in the same way like when we talk about visual storytelling whether from an artist or a cinematographer's perspective negative space is just as much part of the image and so what we're given is this kind of like sonic negative space in very real sense but also inside if you kind of would watch the movie again i think you'd find in smaller senses we're kind of getting the sense of there's there are spaces in the movie to kind of leave us where we can't help but just sort of like contemplate what's going on which is yeah like like you said which is brave story which is brave cinematography because most modern american filmmaking does not do that it is very we're Mm. we're going from one thing to the next rapid 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 yeah you know and a lot of those moments are where the cameras there's a few moments in the movie where the camera just focuses on oppenheimer's face and he's Mm. he's Mm -hmm. reacting to something or he's thinking he's contemplating and this is Brilliant acting by Killian Murphy. Uh, like, I mean, his eyes, like, you just, they just hold your attention. Like, 
Um, but there's some moments in the movie where things are happening and the camera just pans to his face and to, to see his reaction. Um, and there's this, there's often this kind of sense of like, like this mixed feelings in his face. Like, oh, like yes. we have done something amazing, but what have we done? You know, um, mm-hmm. or what are we doing? You know, um, and like, you can see the weight of, the weight of what they're of what they're doing is in his etched in his face even before they do it, um, and obviously some scenes take place after the after the test because it's it's told kind of in kind of reflection from he's in he's you know being interviewed by um, a panel about his security clearance and that's kind of the context of the the, the story is told in a sense from Oppenheimer's point mm-hmm. of view. Yeah. Um, and that starts obviously after the bomb has gone off, and so there's always that sense of like when when the camera just pans to his face and other things are happening, and mm-hmm. you can see you can you don't even need doesn't need to say anything, you know. Of course, the biggest example of that is one of my other favorite scenes in the movie, which is just after the test, and you know the scene mm-hmm. I'm talking about, like I think, where he's going into the room to talk to all these people that have worked on it and. Oh, congratulate yeah. them and uh, i was that was uh, still i i can't I, I can't really describe the scene in words because you have to see it yeah. it's yeah. uh it's essentially oppenheimer's demons in his face while he's he's celebrating like while he's saying one thing and the the crowd the the, the rumor uh, responding in one way but in, you're seeing into his head, mm-hmm. and and basically you're seeing all the de- the demons that he's creating in his head, and the consequences, and what how he feels about what he's done, or how he's responsible, and it's the way that it's done with the music and the visuals and everything. It's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, I was really moved by that scene. Like I was, you know, mm-hmm. and it surprises you. You don't expect it, and. That's why it's so good. One of the reasons it's so good is because you you don't expect that to happen because you haven't had a scene like that in the movie so far. And it's but it's oh, it's so powerful. It's kind of that duality of we're celebrating this achievement, but I am I am feeling the weight of this already mm-hmm. and the consequences of it. And I'm seeing those in my head. And I'm like you know, and then uh, oh, it's just it's difficult to describe because. Yeah, I can't right describe there. it. You have to, you have to watch it to see to understand. Yeah. It's, uh, but it's 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 brilliant filmmaking and brilliant acting as well. No, I'm I'm right there with you. That scene was almost, I would say, as powerful as as the test itself. Mm. And and again, another scene that plays with sound and silence so well because he walks in and there is this basically kind of like you know uh, assembly hall for the town and all these people are on risers and they're just stomping their feet in celebration and it's thundering and it's deafening and he's walking out and you, you, again, the face acting is, which another achievement of amazing filmmaking that, you know, this is a blockbuster film that is mostly just looking at people talking. And that's, that is hard to do in American filmmaking, but that we can see on his face, the conflicted nature that he knows he's, he knows he has to say this because he has he's he's asked so much of these people. These are his colleagues and friends, and he has to tell them basically like we 
we're we we're won. We are successful. Like every all your sacrifices meant something, and he has to tell them that. But at the same time, carrying the weight of the gravity of what has been achieved, and that roaring mm. stops, and it stops when the people are suddenly gone and the people are back, and it's still silent. Mm. And that silence is that silence is more oppressive than the thunderous applause that he's getting. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I felt, I felt trapped. And I think again, that was on purpose of that kind of sort of inevitability of what had been done. And that it is, you know, definitely an aspect of, of that storyline where as we're going up to Trinity, there is this, you see an Oppenheimer and it's, it's that switch where and Killian Murphy basically I from the beginning to the end of the movie, Killian Murphy looks like he actually aged. I know there's makeup involved, but like yeah, just the way his great. eyes look. Yeah. Like there is there's something changed in there. But that scene especially is got kind of the change of up until that point, up until Trinity, there was this kind of feeling of maybe we can stop. That maybe we once we've proven that it can be done and we've succeeded, there's not any reason to do the next step. Mm-hmm. And over and over and over again, what he's what is illustrated to him is that that is out of his hands, first of all, but also in the sense that that's that's not something anyone was ever going to do. He was never going to be able to convince them not to drop it. And that scene, especially, it's you know is illustrated so well and you again feel through the visuals and the sound of dear god what have we done and it's it's, that is i completely agree with you that is such a powerful scene and you could not help but feel the emotionality of of that sequence Mm. yeah yeah and i also agree very hard to put into words how powerful it was yeah there's some things that you I mean, it's, there's a reason that it's a movie. You mm-hmm. know? Um, mm-hmm. There's some, but that, that, I mean, that's. I think that's a sign of good filmmaking, though. When you, when you can't mm-hmm. adequately describe a scene in words, and you just need to see it, oh, yeah. it's <laughs> that. That means they've done their job, you know. Um, and you're right. And there's there's actually a scene just after that where, where Oppenheim is, like, trying to advise them to like, are you going to drop this, or maybe you shouldn't drop this, and. Like all the army generals are like, well, it's already been decided. Like, you, as in, basically, it's almost like there's like yeah. a shift of, of almost like a power. Like it's that, it's like, hey, mm-hmm. it's like the, like the army generals are like, hey, you've done your job. You're not, you've done. You're done. You don't get a say anymore. Like we're gonna, we'll take it from here, kind of. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of, I don't know if what Oppenheimer really felt at the time. He must have known they were going to use it, but. But there is this kind of sense of like this sinking feeling. I had this sinking feeling of like, this is what always happens. Like, you know, we, yeah. we like they take out that they, I mean, we, we call it the system. You can call it capitalism. You can call it government. You can call it, you know, whatever you want to call it. But those people take over like from mm-hmm. the, from, I mean, from the scientists, from the experts, from the creative people, they take what's been done and they just, use it for things that maybe it shouldn't be used for. And, and, and the kind of, I, I did a bit of research on it and they decided to drop the bomb before they'd done the test. They'd already decided, you know, and, and 
like it was like a they just wanted to make sure that the test because I think the I think the I think Hiroshima happened only a few days later. It wasn't long after, it's, was it? It was yeah. Um, they because that was that was the really surprising thing because I I knew enough about the historical events to know one happened before the other. I did not realize how close Trinity was to actually dropping the bomb. Mm. And then that scene in particular, like them deciding to drop the bomb happened before Trinity. So they're like, we haven't actually proven the bomb will work and we're already planning on what we're going to do with it. And so in the sense of once, once Trinity was done, that's it. Like that's that in like what you said, Oppenheimer's part is almost like over. Like, Oh, you, you did what we asked you to do. You made this terrible weapon and now we're going to go use it. Like we told you we're going to, and then it's just like, uh, which is again, the powerfulness of the scene of, and this was true, that the scientists at Los Alamos did not know that Hiroshima had happened until they heard it on the radio. So yeah. they found out. Yeah. At the same time, the rest of the world. That is. And then, I mean, I, that, and then what? I didn't what Oppenheimer gets the movie. And what Oppen, Yeah, and then what Oppenheimer gets as far as congratulations is a phone call from from the the general and basically like, hey, then that's it. In the sense of like, wait, are we not going to discuss the gravity of what just happened? Yeah. And yeah, that's which. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's just that. Yeah, um, that that is quite quite staggering, really. That that they didn't know, they didn't even know it happened until after it happened. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's that, that one part of the tragedy of this story is that you know that they they started building they, they the scientists weren't unaware of, the, of what they were doing. They knew. Mm-hmm. That it probably wasn't a good idea. They knew it was what the consequences could be, but they were in this kind of place where they almost felt they had no choice because the question, what they were, the question they were asking themselves is, what if, what if Hitler gets one of these? Like, yeah. what if he gets one before we do? Then we're, you know, we're doomed because he, because Hitler wouldn't have any qualms about dropping multiple nu- multiple atomic bombs all over the world, right? If he had access to them. And so it's kind of you can I I kind of empathise in that like when you, when you've got someone like Hitler in charge of nuclear weapons or potentially mm-hmm. you you've got to do something. It's almost like they they were like, well, we don't have a choice. We've got to do this. And then by the time Hitler, by the time they actually get close to completing the project, Hitler is dead, and actually didn't have any nuclear weapons at all, and hadn't made the progress with that that people thought he had, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's too late, you know. It's kind of the cat's yeah. out of the bag at that point, and um, it's happening, you know. And um, you know, and I think even there's a moment of reflection from Oppenheimer, like you know, Hitler's dead. Can we do we do we stop now? You know, I think yeah. there's a moment of where he says that, and it's like, well, no, we're, we're too far into this now. <laughs> this is going to happen, mm-hmm. like basically, like, <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's a tragedy, really, because like that you you would think there's a certain set of circumstances where this where this could have been stopped before it got mm-hmm. to that point. But at the same time, you you also think, well, this somebody would have developed this technology eventually, even you know it would have whether it's the Soviet mm-hmm. Union or you know or America, some somebody would have developed this at some point because that's human nature is curiosity and also to. Also, mm-hmm. to weaponize discover weaponize things that we create, you know, and um, or use it for, yeah, you know, it's, it's and it's 
yeah, it's kind of the human wrapped up in this movie is is like the ongoing human tragedy in a sense of you know mm-hmm. what we do with what we create, what we do with the knowledge that we discover, what we do with um, you know the scientific breakthroughs that we make, you know, um, and what we do with the people who make them. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of that. yeah, which. It's interesting. It's the irony of of this movie coming out in the middle of the strike. And I was watching on Instagram um, Adam Conover. He's a he's a writer. Um, he had a TV show called like Adam Ruins Everything. Uh, we kind of talked about like you know actual facts and and societal stuff. And he's he's a writer. Obviously, he's with the strike. He's done some other um, projects, and he's been posting obviously on his. Uh, social media, different things about the strike. And he mentioned that obviously one of the points in both the actors and writers strike is uh, use of AI um, mm. and yeah. how we're going to deal with this. And he mentioned is again, the irony of this movie coming out and uh, during this strike and that we're talking about it. Then he said, he mentioned like AI is not the problem. The technology is not the problem. Technology on its surface, just just kind of this like, hey, look what we can do with the things, and isn't that cool? And that's if that's all it was, that'd be all it was. And, and he mentioned specifically, he draw the parallel is like, it's it's not about the technology itself; it's about what certain people want to do with it. In the same way, and he actually drew this parallel: splitting the atom is not the problem. That's science that we wanted to figure out. That's how we figure out how, what an atom was made of: is we split it apart. Like, and we still do that in super colliders. We're splitting the atom all the time. That's not the problem. The problem is making a bomb out of that. Yeah. And it's, it takes a certain kind of person to take this, what is essentially a, a scientific curiosity or technological curiosity and saying, let's do this with it. And that being something that is at best morally questionable, uh, but far closer to something like morally reprehensible. And it's that it's that gulf between you know the science and um, again what society does with it, and you, you said it perfectly. Of the tragedy of the situation is a human one, and you know best, the best stories are human stories, and it's the sense of like what can we and can we not be trusted with, and it's that scene that you had mentioned where they're talking about dropping the bomb, and it, I believe it was like the Secretary of State and the Joint Chiefs and. Oppenheimer is there and he's been invited and you can kind of see that's sort of where the first sort of thing starts slipping out of his hands because you can see as he's kind of suggesting to them and again again this is pre-trinity they haven't actually proven the bomb will work and they kind of talk about you know the timeline and he's doing what you know a good scientist would be like well I don't know if we can move that fast but and you know the, the journals next to him kind of like you know he's he's speaking the military talk now and you can see in that moment kind of the discussion, it quickly becomes like to the other men in the room, white men in the room, let's be real. Yeah. That, well, of course we're going to drop the bomb. Like, why wouldn't we drop? Like, And there's that line where the Secretary of State pulls out. He's like, I have a list of 12 cities. Oh, mark that, 11. And he crosses out. He's like, I'm taking off Kyoto because uh, it's beautiful, at which Kyoto is like the oldest Japanese city mm. um, for its you know cultural and significance. Also, my my wife and I we honeymooned there. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, and just the the 
like cognitive dissonance of the entire scene, which you can see on Oppenheimer's face as he's watching this men discuss what they're going to do. And the sense of, and then I think if it's either him or someone else mentions, well, okay, what are some military targets? And they mentioned like maybe a fort or a port or something. And they, and someone comes back with too small, which that like gave me pause in the sense of like, why, why is that a problem? Like if we can wipe this, like if it's a target that's smaller than our blast radius, then wouldn't we just, wouldn't that be as effective as dropping it on something slightly larger? Like what, why are we arguing over the size of the the, the vaporization? Like, well, it won't be worth it if we can't yeah. really destroy mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And then that, that line about Kyoto in the sense of like, oh, they think they're being just. And the Secretary of State saying like, I'm taking off Kyoto, like I'm doing them a favor. Like we're we won't blow up your most precious city. We'll just blow up some smaller city with people in it, and yeah, I know. It, and not not a military target because that wouldn't be enough to convince you. And then obviously we're going to do two to show you one we have this, and two we'll continue doing this until you know we're done with you. Mm-hmm. And just the and you can again, this is on purpose <laughs> of these men discussing this, not unseriously. But so already, like, mm. no one's sitting here except no one but Ombudheimer seems to be sitting here weighing the moral judgment of it. They're more like, what's the practical like application? Yeah, yeah. The moral judgment's an answer for them. And it's that kind of sense of that we, the audience, through his perspective, because he is the protagonist, we are attaching our emotions to him. They understand, oh, it was never a moral question for them. No. Or if it was, it didn't take near. They're not dealing. Yeah. They're not w- wrestling with it, and he's the only one in the room wrestling with it. And that being the first sort of clue of like, oh, it was never. There was never a chance of it. The moment I told them we could do this, this it was always going to be Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The moment that we could make a bomb, they were always going to use it. Mm. And that being, yeah, again, flashing forward to the end of the movie where he's in that, what is basically a trial. Um, calling into question his loyalty after giving and asking, you know, the the prosecutor just grilling him like 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 he's a criminal and just asking, when did you have doubts? And he's like, when I figured out that any weapon I gave them would be used, that there was no limit to the destructive capability. They'd be like, maybe you don't need to use that. That was never a question. Mm-hmm. It's just any, the bigger, the, the bomb always has to be bigger. And if they have it, we have to have a bigger bomb. And that being, uh, you can understand from Oppenheimer's perspective, having seen what he has seen, experienced what he experienced, and being like, the moment you figure it out, they're never going to stop. Like, I can either consign myself to participate with it, or I can opt out. And just understanding that that's kind of where he came to, but his own, and then that been since basically his own moral stipulations made him now the enemy because we, you know, it was the fifties and it's the cold war. Yeah. You don't get to call into question the morality of our actions. That is a given. And again, it's this, it's the men in the room. Obviously we're the good guys. So whatever we do must be the good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Not, and if we're yeah. showing if we're not gonna bomb their their biggest city and we're not gonna wipe out all their people, that's a kindness on our part. And yeah. that being I know, that's so 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just, so far from anything considered moral, but that, that being the reality of the situation. Yeah, and the other thing as well I found out is that the actor who said that, that, that guy that talked about, oh, we won't bomb that city. Mm-hmm. That was a real person. And he actually yeah. said that. And it wasn't in the script yeah. originally. The actor who played him did research on the character and found out that he said that. And so he, that he improvised impressive. that yeah. in the scene because that's something that he actually said. And mm. that makes it even more powerful. You know, like yeah. real people said this. Like like they mm-hmm. had no no conscience almost. Like this kind of sense that we are that we we are that we are the guardians of morality, therefore we get to decide what is just and what is right and and what isn't. You know, and other people and our enemy don't mm-hmm. get to decide that because they're not moral. Like all like basically judging every single person. Who lived in who lived in these uh, countries as if that they were all of them with it like and of course this was quite this was propaganda this what this is what people were mm-hmm. like you know brainwashed into believing that everybody who lived in those countries was the enemy like uh, and that's what happens during war but nevertheless mm-hmm. the kind of the dehumanizing of people uh, oh, yeah. like is on a, on this staggering scale and I think that's the thing as well that Oppenheimer was. He didn't realize this at first. He assumed everyone else was like him and had a conscience, and like we will only drop these if it's appropriate to do so. Um, mm-hmm. And there's that, and again, it's 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 Killian Murphy's face acting that does this, like this realization that oh, this this was they never they'd never cared about, they never had a conscience about this. This was a mission, yeah. um, and. There was no chance that they weren't going to do this, like you say. You know, and it was, you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, and you're right about it being a message for all kind of, all technology, you know, mm. all innovation. I mean, like Mission Impossible, the recent Mission Impossible movie, t- kind of touched on AI and the power yeah. of AI. That was one of the things I loved about that movie was was that it <laughs> it really explored that really in depth, you know, like, and uh, it felt more realistic because of that. Um, and yeah, like it's the same thing. Like, are we we're going to like, when we create new technology? Like, are we are we responsible enough as a species to steward it well? And the answer mm-hmm. keeps being no. <laughs> um, and yeah. that is you know that's troubling. And like you know, I had a lot of reflections after I saw the movie about about that and about you know obviously nuclear weapons and the situation in the world at the moment and you know people who've got who've got who've got control of nuclear weapons who really shouldn't um and yeah it's uh and that's what the movie leaves you with it's like this kind of reflection of you know this kind of constant tragedy of humanity and inability of humanity to steward things responsibly like i i had this sense of like we're we're children we're like kids in a toy store we're like we're like toddlers playing with sharp knives and guns you know like um and loaded guns you know like that's what we're doing we're you know mm-hmm. we've got the ability to create these things but we haven't got the maturity to use them and um well, well the people in charge haven't got the maturity to use them anyway um there's some people that i would trust to well do the right thing because they probably wouldn't use them they probably destroyed them but um but um but um but yeah like it, it's uh yeah the, the legacy of that movie is is really powerful 
Absolutely. I think that's, you know, it's definitely one of those movies that needed to get made simply because it's a story that needed to be told. Mm-hmm. And it's a little, I remember, uh, so the, the, the script that uh, Nolan wrote was obviously adapted from uh, a biography of Robert Oppenheimer called American Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And the author had mentioned um, that, uh, when you know uh, a couple weeks back that the book is is a number of years old and because of you know the gravity of the story other people have tried to write scripts about it and never quite captured like and the reason the story has not been made yet because none of those scripts quite captured uh the story itself and that it wasn't until nolan writing the script actually captured uh this story and so it's one of those kind of it's it's a little surprising, but at the same time, like it's a little surprising that we haven't had an Oppenheimer biopic yet. And this this is a story that is seventy, almost eighty years old now. Yeah. And but at the same time, one of those things like, oh, it's probably a good thing because it would have been really hard not to write that as propaganda up until a certain point. Mm-hmm. Like um yeah. And you kind of needed, obviously, this movie. So it's one of those, it's one of those stories that you immediately kind of know, and that, and that very kind of Schindler's List way. Like this is an important story. As much as this is good filmmaking, this is also a story we need to be exposed to because we need to remind ourselves of the history of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And with that, and it's just one of those things. Like it's you know good to point out a lot of you know there has been criticism, and I. I you know, I don't want to say that in the sense of like it's bad because I think criticism can very much is part of the experience because stories are never going to cover everything. And there's things this story didn't cover that did happen, just maybe not to the character. And so it's kind of a focused story on this. And now that we've had this, I've mentioned to you before, now that we have the Oppenheimer movie, it is now time to make the other movies that we need to make. Yeah. Um, notably, we need and when I say we, I mean American American cinema, but obviously someone um, connected with this. But we need the Hiroshima Hiroshima movie. Like that's a movie we need to see because that's something we need to we need to understand because yeah. we need to see you know the consequences of this. In the same way, I, I it's been going around social media. Um, someone mentioned that you know the displaced people who lived in Los Alamos because people lived in Los Alamos before. Um, uh, that an author mentioned that they had a screen uh, written a, a screenplay about their story uh, because they also have suffered at the hands of of the nuclear test, not just being displaced, uh, yeah. but uh, I think the community is still dealing with yeah. the fallout from the original test. Yeah, you know, and has a very high uh, instance of um, certain defects, and then corollary to that, I think, has like one of the highest uses of heroin in the country. Because um, they are still dealing with the generational trauma yep. of this, and that's and also a story that needs to be told. I think cancer as well. People have developed cancer, mm-hmm. various yeah. types. Um, yeah, and that's, that's an important story that needs to be told as well. We need we need mm-hmm. to hear the, all these stories because, um, yeah, I mean, we need the whole story now. We need the human story. It's, it's yeah, people's stories deserve to be told. You know, and um. 
Uh, one thing actually I like about this movie is it doesn't make Oppenheimer into a hero. Like it's a big American hero. Mm, yeah. It's not one of those kind of movies. Um, it's almost, I wouldn't say it's the opposite, but it, it paints him as a, it, it, it portrays him as a human being who is very mm-hmm. conflicted about what he has done and about the morality of it and the consequences of it and makes mistakes, makes mistakes in his personal life, makes mistakes in his you know, professional life uh, mm-hmm. and he's very, very human. And yeah. that's down to the acting. It's down to the, the, the writing and the direction. It's very, it humanizes um, Oppenheimer very much. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's made, that's made um, more so obviously by Killian Murphy's performance. Um, his best mm-hmm. performance, best. I mean, he's a great actor. I've always loved Killian Murphy as an actor, um, but yeah, he needs to get an Oscar for this movie. Um, it's, oh my it's an incredible performance. And uh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of Oscars that need to get given for this movie, but um, I'm sure it will win the Oscars, I think. I'm pretty sure it will win Oscars this year. Mm. But, um, yeah, um, it's yeah, it's great. It's just great movie making. And yeah. yeah, and actually there's one scene at the end where he... Uh, where um, we haven't talked about this character much, but um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, um, who kind ah. of set up as kind of the Salieri to, and, and Chris Nolan's actually mentioned this comparison, Salieri mm-hmm. to kind of Oppenheimer's Mozart. Um, yes. I, and I've forgotten the name of the character. That's going to annoy me. It's uh, Strauss. Strauss. Uh, that's it, yes. Strauss. And yeah. that's, this is another Oscar-worthy performance, by the way. Um, well, that's. I was about to say we haven't talked about him. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, we, <laughs> we could just just talk about Robert Downey Jr. He was this, part of his, his yes. yeah, his yes. his you know, mm. I suppose you know. Uh, but at the end of the movie, when he is facing the consequences of what he did, mm-hmm. um, and there's a whole bunch of great performances here, cameos like half mm. of this movie is absolutely stellar. You know, Remy Malek oh, yeah. is in about is in it for about. 10 minutes and has one spoken yeah. scene and he absolutely like he could win an Oscar for that. Kills scene. it. Like, yep. It's unbelievable. Anyway. Um, but they mentioned one of the people that voted against him was a Senator from Massachusetts and Massachusetts. Kennedy, yes. you know? And <laughs> yep. I thought, I actually thought that was a little, that was probably intentional because mm, you remember oh, yeah. that Kennedy was president during the you know, Cuban missile crisis. Yes. And I've read a lot about that period of his I've seen lots of documentaries and yeah, you know, he was like he had the generals all around him pushing him to go to war. Yeah. Right? And he refused to do so. And um and actually he and um Khrushchev almost decided between them that we don't want a nuclear war. Like yeah. as much as we are political opponents, we do not want a nuclear war. And it was almost decided between those two without like, all their generals like wanted nuclear war. Right. And these two people kind of decided, no, we're not going to do this. Um, and Kennedy had wanted to end the cold war. He'd wanted to end the arms race. Um, you know, so there's an element of this story continuing almost in a sense. Um, yeah. And another tragedy because, you know, Kennedy was assassinated. And, you know, you can say what you think what you like about who assassinated him and why, but the reality is that he was assassinated and that ended a lot of that, you know, yeah. and led to Vietnam as well. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, I'd love to, I mean, I, I was actually saying this on Twitter. I'd love to see a movie from Christopher Nolan called Kennedy and Khrushchev, which centers their relationship mm-hmm. completely. Um, and around this, around this missile crisis, you know, um, and like how those human decisions changed will stop nuclear war when people all around were, I mean, that would be an interesting movie. And there's already been a movie about the missile missile crisis, which is very good called 13 days. I think it's called. Yes. There's something I mean, it would love to see um, Nolan do, do a take on that, but he probably won't, but it was, it was just an interesting <laughs> little thread because of, of Kennedy's perspective on, you know, on the, on the arms race and nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and what he actually did, you know, to prevent nuclear war. To just add that little yeah. name in there at the end was just that little kind of teaser. A little nod. Yeah. In this kind of very historical, like this actually happened kind of way, but also in this sort of like, I think you had mentioned before, like that's it's a little bit like the Nick Fury at the end of Iron Man sort of nod as to yeah. like, oh, other things are going on. Yeah. There's actually this bigger universe. And Batman Begins as well, it, where the, the yeah, Joker card. With the, the Joker <laughs> yeah. card, yeah. Uh, which is just, which is, you know, feels very Nolan, but. I, I would definitely agree with you. I think because it makes me think, you know, there has been movies about the the missile crisis. Thirteen Days is most recent, and but definitely, you know, from what I know of that, that is much more sort of a broad kind of like yeah. describing an historical event that a lot of people just don't know about. I think the the tagline for the movie is "You won't believe how close we came," uh, which is you know a lot of people just were not aware of that. Even now, like in hindsight, we're not really taught that in schools. Um, and so that was, you know, that served its kind of purpose in this sort of broad, sort of like informational. But I agree with you with like a very uh, focused personal, especially between these two individuals who are, you know, very powerful, pivotal men at the, you know, the, the crux of history there. And I think I would really enjoy that because and another thing that Oppenheimer has done is kind of show like, again, the kind of stories we can tell. And that a lot of when we do like these historical epics, which it's hard not to call it an epic, they tend to be kind of the the eagle's eye view. We're trying to tell as much about mm-hmm. what happened as we can, and we want to get the whole thing. We want to we want to get the whole sort of picture of of you know of this particular event, and it, it makes sense. But at the same time, like history is history is a human story, and human stories are very personal, and so. That we often can, you know, in in looking at the forest, we can kind of often miss the trees. And Oppenheimer is such a great, you know, it, it's partly because we have a person in Oppenheimer who was positioned to tell the story. But that Oppenheimer, as much as it is a story about a big historical event, is very, like, again, we see mostly faces. It's very focused. Yeah, it's, yeah. And it's interesting seeing an historic, I could definitely see a story about Los Alamos in this sort of broad with, you know, an all-star cast, but still in this sort of broad kind of like just trying to tell the facts as much as they can and miss a lot of the details and the personal details. Mm. And so whereas this, what is essentially a biopic still is epic in the quality, but is so much more focused in that way, as much as we're getting the facts, of the situation, we are also understanding the gravity of the situation in a way that you can watch a movie that tells you all the facts you can watch a documentary that tells you all the facts of what happened and maybe not fully, depending on how well it's made, not fully understand the gravity of the situation. 
And this is a story that tells us the facts, but also gives the gravity. And so like where if you had the Kennedy Khrushchev, that would be really interesting to watch because again, we would get the aspect that's missing from the sort of the broader stories of this very personal quality of human beings lived through this. And this is how we really understand stories best is when we're we're told it through the eyes of someone. Yeah. And that is that is storytelling at its finest. Yeah is when we actually get a perspective, we're mm-hmm. actually on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something this movie does so well that it 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 adds, you know, I would say it is part of, or the, the lion's part of the power of this film, not just the amazing cinematography, the soundscape, all that, but that we are, we are seeing this through someone's perspective and we are feeling what they are feeling as it is happening. Yeah, the human, the human idea. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, the personal story with the bigger story. Like we talk about this in, you know, off, uh, offline kind of like you know um, about how there's always in movies there's often a there's a, there's a, there's the bigger story of you know what's happening, but there's mm-hmm. there's the, in good storytelling there's human stories at the at the front of it which you're yeah. concerned about. Like, I mean, example Star Wars, right? Yeah. Um, Return of the Jedi. The big story is let's destroy the Empire. The real story yeah. is. Anakin and his son, right? And um, Anakin saving his father. Like that's 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 the story that when I watch it, that's the story I'm most invested in. But there's still, yeah. big, there's still this big story that's happening, which is valid. But the heart of the story is, is for these two characters, or three characters, of the Emperor, mm-hmm. like that are, that are you know that are driving it. And Christopher Nolan does that in his movies a lot, um, and very very that's well. Right. And he does it in this movie. Because Oppenheimer is the character that you are. He even wrote the script in the first person of Oppenheimer. Like the scenes, yeah. the, the color scenes, which are basically Oppenheimer's perspective, are all written in the first person. And uh, the other scenes are not written in the first person because they're more objective and they're more the alternative perspective. Um, um, and that's good writing, obviously. But it it's an example of how we're seeing this big story, but we're seeing it through the lens of one character. Uh, in particular, or two characters potentially, you know, because Strauss as well is equally important in the story, and we see his mm-hmm. perspective as well. So, yeah, I agree. So, um, yeah, go and see this movie, everyone, and, um, and do reflect on it if you haven't yeah. seen it already. Um, it's a really great movie. Um, I doubt it'll be on the cinemas by the time this comes out, but um, see it on as big a screen as you can um, if you haven't already. Um, and yeah, take time with it and sit with it. It's uh, it's a great movie, um, in oh, every yeah. sense. So, thank you, mm-hmm. Douglas, um, for coming on. And um, it's always good to chat to you and have you on the show. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll have you back again. Um, uh, well, uh, <laughs> by the time this airs, Loki season two will have come out, and we might have already recorded yeah, this is not, a yeah. podcast for that. So. They might come out the week after each other. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you might hear me twice in the same month. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll do an episode on that for sure. Um, I can always oh, see yeah. from the trailer that's going to have a lot of stuff to talk about. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. yes, yes. So um, enjoy that when that comes out, um, which again will be out after the writer strike is finished. Uh, yes. So, yes. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Douglas, for coming on. And um, sure. take care, everyone. <laughs>